knew that video was going to start at some point. I'd like to thank Pastor Kenton and our ensemble this morning for leading us in worship. What a great morning of worship. Thank you. <clears throat> also, I'd like to say to you all here today that uh, I think there are many, many people uh, right here living right around us who don't even know a service like this exists of traditional worship. So my challenge to you is don't keep it a secret. Uh, be willing to share with someone where you go to church, why you go to church here, and that we have wonderful traditional worship done in an excellent way every Sunday morning. I invite them to come with you sometime. Will you do that? Well, when I was a senior in college, I had to take one more science class to fulfill the requirements of my liberal arts college degree. So, naturally, I chose a class for non-science majors, a class called Astronomy 101. And I chose it because it was supposed to be the easiest science class you could take at my school. Um, I mean, what could, be, what could be hard about looking at stars, right? Astronomy 101. Uh, so I sat in the back, right about the very back row with a couple of my buddies who were also non-science majors, and our level of attention to the material was, you know, a little less than stellar. Uh, one day the professor asked what seemed to be a profoundly dumb question. The professor said, why is the sky dark at night? And immediately my buddy Mike, who was sitting next to me, leaned over and whispered to me, because the sun goes down. And we were giggling like third graders in the back row. We're college kids. Uh, but the professor went on to describe something called Olber's Paradox. Anyone? Olber's Paradox. A German physicist named Heinrich Olber's first posed the question in 1823, and it goes something like this. If the universe is infinite in size... Uh, and there are infinite number of stars and galaxies spread throughout the universe, then theoretically we should see a star at every point in the night sky when we look up at, at the night sky. And the collective light from millions and billions of points of starlight should fill the night sky with light, but it doesn't. So why is it dark at night? Professor went on to explain that it had something to do with something called the red shift. And right about that time I realized Astronomy 101 was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And that is that the universe is still expanding and light from the most distant stars either has not reached the earth yet or due to the speed, uh, the wavelength of the light has changed and shifted out of the visible spectrum, which is why it's called the redshift. Okay, you follow that? Neither did we. We had no idea what the professor's talking about. And at this point in the lecture, my friend Mike, sitting right next to me, with sort of great disgust, closed his notebook, stopped taking notes, and said out loud so I could hear him, I don't have to believe that, he said. I don't have to believe that. And today we continue a series called Faith That Finishes, and we have seen that Peter, writing these letters, is concerned about what first-generation Christians are believing and experiencing. And he's mostly concerned here in 2 Peter about what he calls false teachers, those who are teaching something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as Pastor Joe shared last week here, uh, even today, there are those right here in our culture and some who call themselves Christians who teach different versions of the gospel. For example, Jesus plus, Joe said, Jesus plus material wealth could be called the prosperity gospel, or Jesus plus the right political affiliation, the political gospel, or Jesus plus moralism, sort of the be a good person gospel. Or maybe some are teaching Jesus minus, that is Jesus minus the call to discipleship, or Jesus minus the call to sexual purity, or Jesus minus 
the call to love your neighbor as yourselves. Jesus minus the cross, Jesus minus the resurrection, and especially Peter's concerned about those who are teaching Jesus minus the second coming. So we're going to read here today the first 10 verses of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. I'm going to read the whole thing through it. They're going to break it down into three sections. So follow along with me on the screen as I read. Dear friends, and by the way, the word he uses here for dear friends in Greek is agapetoi, which is from, uh, related to the, the word agape, which you've all heard about, which is usually used in reference to the love of God. And he's saying that they are the beloved ones of God. So never forget, when you read God's word, you are an agapetoi. You are a beloved son or daughter of your father. Our dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you or to stir you up to wholesome thinking, literally to a pure mind, to a right way of thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets as opposed to the false prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now here, notice he says, through your apostles. Peter had already identified himself at the beginning of this letter as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And now he seems to understand that he, along with the other apostles, those who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, and were commissioned by Jesus to go out into the world with the gospel, they bore a special authority and a special responsibility to teach and to lead. And it's out of that authority that he's writing. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word... The present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Okay, we're going to break this into three chunks this morning. First, a reminder, and then a warning, and finally, a promise. Let's begin with a reminder. Last Pet Monday, we all know, was Memorial Day. It's the day we set aside as Americans to remember and honor those who gave uh, their lives uh, in military service. And I wonder here this morning, how many of you had... Um, a relative, maybe a distant relative, maybe a close relative or a friend uh, who uh, gave their lives in military service. Anybody back in your family tree? Yeah, look at that. Yeah, so we remember. And Memorial Day uh, reminds me now um, that a few years ago, my wife and I had a chance to travel to Europe, and we decided to take a day trip to the site of the Normandy invasion in World War II. Uh, it's a powerful thing. Uh, if you've had a chance to do that, to look out over what is today a, a peaceful beach um, where such carnage and courage took place so long ago. Uh, but by far the most moving experience for 
us, for me, was to visit the American Cemetery and Memorial there at Normandy. Uh, stretching as far as you can see, and you've probably seen pictures like this before, uh, there are a field of crosses and stars of David, uh, 9,386 to be exact, marking the graves of fallen soldiers. And I decided that I was walking along those crosses to take just one photo with my camera, with my phone, of one cross with one name, and I was going to try to find out as much as I could about that person. So I took a picture, and the picture I took was of a man named Delmar C. McElmany. Okay? That was the cross. And when I got home using the miracle of the Internet, I searched. And here's what I found. First, I found out that this uh, young man's name, he, he died when he was 22 years old. His name was misspelled on his cross. The cross should be McElhaney, not McElmany. And his family has tried for over 70 years to get that changed, and it has not been changed. That made me kind of sad. It made me sad. But uh, he was with a group of paratroopers who were dropped behind enemy lines in advance of the invasion. He was dropped several miles off target. So he and seven or eight other soldiers were lost. They found each other, and they hid in a small, small farming village in France. But during the night, uh, they were discovered by a German patrol. They were interrogated and then marched into a nearby wooded area and executed. Shot in the back of the head. Uh, it's now called the Massacre at Hemeve. It was eventually documented as a war crime. Their bodies were buried by local French farmers out of respect, who then told their story to the American commanders after the Germans had left. Their bodies were eventually exhumed again and moved to the military cemetery where they are today. And the village where they died built a monument which reads in part, These seven martyrs died for France, never forget. And today, every, uh, every June 6th, and this will be the 77th year, uh, that town, small little village, the mayor comes out, everybody comes around, and they have a memorial around that marker for those seven Americans. Amazing. Today, June 6th. Peter says this is his purpose, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, to stir you up to pure thinking, to remember what is true and right, because what and how we think determines how we live and who we are. First, he says, remember the prophets. Verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now this is the second time, if you remember, that Peter has reminded us of the importance of the Old Testament prophets, how they anticipated the coming of the Messiah, how they anticipated the suffering, death, even the resurrection of the Messiah, and pointed even to the return of the Messiah at the end of all things. Remember back in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we read, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you'll do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now this time, Peter refers to the second coming not as the morning star rising, but rather as the day of the Lord, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But for now, he points us back to the, what the prophets had to say about the coming day of the Lord. So follow these next two passages with me. First, Isaiah chapter 13. Wail, the prophet writes, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The day of the Lord is coming, the prophet says, the day of judgment. 
Amos chapter 5, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. These are ominous and frightening words. And throughout Scripture, the day of the Lord points to the coming judgment of all things. The prophets are saying the world is dark. The world is full of brokenness and sin and evil. But God is not absent. God is not failing to pay attention. The day is coming when God will execute his perfect justice and every evil be, will be destroyed and every injustice made right again. Peter now, in his letters, reminding these first-generation believers and us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these ancient prophecies. That the risen Jesus will return as he said he would, and on that day he will judge the world and all that is in it. Secondly, Peter says, remember the commandment of Jesus through your apostles. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself affirms the word of the ancient prophets when he says, Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. That's how he refers to himself, the Son of Man, in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Did you know that there are more than 1,500 references in the Old Testament that refer to the second coming of Jesus, the Messiah. That's what scholars tell us. Did you know that in the New Testament, there are 330 verses that also refer to the second coming of Jesus? Jesus himself spoke of his own return 21 times in words that he said. And 50 times in the New Testament, we, as his followers, are reminded and exhorted to prepare for and be ready for the day of the Lord's return. In John 14, Jesus himself says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Many of you uh, will remember words from the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you've attended churches where the creed was recited every single uh, worship service, but it finishes with these words. It's one of the most ancient affirmations of our faith. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Peter says, remember. Secondly, he offers us a warning. A warning. Uh, a number of years ago, a uh, member here at Chapel Street, uh, then called FBC, First Baptist of Geneva, asked me if I'd be willing to meet with a couple that they knew of who was having some marriage difficulties, a couple in their late 20s, uh, maybe 30. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll meet with them. So um, we met, and I found out very quickly that most of their issues had to do with this uh, husband's um, just almost um, unimaginably selfish behavior. And he was not shy about it. He readily admitted it. He and his wife had one small child, another one on the way. But he had decided that married life was, had become sort of boring for him. And he was going to have some fun. Uh, so he was uh, blatantly seeing other women. He was hanging out in bars with his guy friends and was completely unrepentant. Uh, he even said to me in front of his wife, who was in tears right there, he said, uh, this is my time, baby. It's my time. He was a good-looking guy, kind of full of himself. Um, 
And then I asked him if he'd be willing to meet with me one-on-one because I had to talk to him about some stuff. So he said he was. He surprised me. So we got together one-on-one, and then he repeated the same act. Just, just arrogant, and eventually his attitude just got to me. That doesn't happen very much in counseling, but I got mad at this guy. I interrupted him as he was talking, and I said, hey, hey, hang on a second. I said, do you believe in God? And he went, yeah, kind of like that. I said, well, do you believe in heaven? And he said, oh, you mean that place people talk about that makes themselves feel better when somebody dies? I said, yeah, uh, that place. And then I said, well, you need to know something. There is a God, and he's paying attention, and he decides one day who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And let me tell you something, buddy, it's not looking good for you right now. And for just a minute, I thought he was going to take a swing at me. I mean, it got really tense. But I wasn't going to let him get away with it. He was mocking God right in front of me. And I just couldn't help myself. But the most amazing thing happened. He stopped himself, and his demeanor completely changed. And we went on to have a really productive conversation about his life, his decisions, about faith. And it kind of came out well in the end. But for a while, I was a little bit nervous. Um, Peter says here, verse 3, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers, the word means a mocker or false teacher, will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what's a scoffer? To Peter, a scoffer was not just one who doesn't believe, not one who is just ignorant about faith, but it's someone who willfully disbelieves. In Peter's context, a scoffer is one who is teaching another gospel, willfully contradicting what the Lord himself had already said. And they do so, Peter says, because first, their desires are sinful. Verse 3 says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. The word there means inordinate desire or lust. That young man I met with when we first met with them was not interested in God, primarily because he was interested in pursuing his own pleasure. He was interested in pursuing the lusts of his mind, lustful desires. To even consider the idea of God would mean that he was accountable for his behavior, and he didn't want to do that. And I might have been the first person to confront him with that. Interesting, if you look at the history of uh, some of the more well-known cult leaders that we are all aware of, like uh, Jim Jones or David Koresh, or maybe you know of a guy named David Berg who founded the Children of God out in California in the 60s, almost to a person, eventually they are discovered to be frauds, that they are in it for financial gain or for sexual immorality. And all three of those I just mentioned were to gratify themselves. Peter says, watch out for them. Secondly, he says, they will doubt the second coming. <coughs> Excuse me, they will doubt the second coming. Verse 4, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, <coughs> everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Okay, so the, the earliest believers in Jesus thought he was coming back because he promised, and they thought he would come back during their lifetimes. And they were beginning to die off. 
Uh, and they believed he was coming back because life was hard. It was their great hope. They were beginning to suffer. He promised, where is he? He said he would come back. So it was natural for them to wonder, why is it taking so long? I wonder if you've ever wondered the same thing. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. Peter's saying there are those in the church who not only wondered about this, but they began to teach that since Jesus had not yet returned, that he wasn't going to return. That since he had not yet fulfilled that promise, it was never going to be fulfilled. They were teaching that the belief in the second coming of Jesus was a pipe dream, a fantasy, a fairy tale, was false hope. I was thinking about that. That would be like a Cubs fan in 2015 saying, because it's been 108 years, they're never going to win. And then they won the next year. Just because something hasn't happened in the past doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. I think we see the same thing today. And this view comes from something I might call a, a materialistic or science, purely scientific perspective. Now, I use the word scientific there um, re, with, re, with reservation because science, to me, properly understood, properly pursued, leads to a greater understanding of and honor of the God who created all things, not a lesser understanding. But a purely materialistic or mechanical view of the universe says that everything can be explained by the physical laws of nature, that that's all there is. There is no creator God who exists outside the physical universe, who acts independently of the laws of the universe. This belief that there, uh, says there is no God or else God is not able to or wants to do anything new. These teachers were in effect saying uh, God's judgment has not happened yet, Therefore, it's not going to happen. And thirdly, Peter says, they deliberately forget. Verse 5, they deliberately forget that, not, that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. They deliberately forget. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson uh, created his own version of the Bible? Have you ever read the story? Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he went through the entire New Testament and just clipped out the parts he didn't like, and put it back together into his own Bible. In particular, he removed all references to miracles, uh, from walking on water, to turning water into wine, to healing the sick. He removed all references to the cross and to the resurrection. He kept only Jesus' moral teachings, like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So Jefferson created for himself a Jesus who was just like any other man who just had nice things to teach because that's what he wanted to believe. In other words, he believed in Jesus minus. He willfully ignored huge portions of God's word, and that's what Peter calls a scoffer, one who scoffs at God's word and his promises. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that by long ago, God's word, uh, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's coming right out of Genesis chapter 1. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. What's he talking about? The flood, right? The flood. God judged the evil of the world. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let me just summarize that. Simply put, he's saying that those who deny the second coming of Jesus, the coming judgment of God, forget that God created everything that is by his speaking his word, which means that everything that we call natural law was created by God. 
He's also saying that God chose to interrupt the course of nature when he sent the flood to judge evil and sin in the world. And, Peter says, he's going to do that again. He's going to judge again. Now, this can be seen in two ways. It's a stern and sober warning, or it's a wonderful and hope-filled promise. That leads us to the third part today, a promise. A promise. When our boys were much younger, uh, my wife rarely traveled from home uh, for any length of time. Um, but on the few occasions she had to be town, out of town over a weekend uh, and left me in charge of everything, I uh, developed a, a strategy. I knew that when she would get home, she would appreciate a tidy and clean house. Uh, but I also didn't think it terribly necessary to keep it tidy and clean all the time while she was gone. So I would just let the you know, pizza boxes and Portillo's bags pile up in the family room and on the table, and the dishwasher would, dish, the, the sink would be full of dishes and stuff. I just would leave it, and I figured out it took me about 30 minutes for every day she was away to clean up. So if I knew she was coming home Sunday evening at 6 p.m., I'd start at 4.30, and I could get it all done, even finish up with the nice little stripes of the vacuum cleaner so it looks like she can see the stripes on the carpet. That was my strategy, and it worked. The only problem would come when I didn't know exactly when she was going to get back. If it was, uh, I'll be home sometime tomorrow, that was a problem, because then I had to live in sort of a state of perpetual readiness, and that was hard. What Peter says in verse uh, 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Peter says three things here. First, God is eternal. Now, as human beings, we, we have a problem wrapping our minds around this word eternal, that which has no beginning and no end. We really can't conceive of that. That's why Peter gives us sort of an analogy. He says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Now, he's not giving this to, this to us like a math question, but what if we did, we were talking in a preaching team meeting the other day, what if we did take this literally? What would it mean? If a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day, that would mean one hour is worth 42 years. It means a 70-year life would take about an hour and a half. Right? It would mean that a four-year pre four presidential term lasts five minutes. Put that in perspective, right? King David was alive this past Wednesday. Jesus died Friday. We'll all be gone by this afternoon. Who sped up the tape on that, right? Look at, if we look at it that way, it makes our lives feel tiny and insignificant. But what if we turned it around and we used the formula going the other way? If every day of my life equals a thousand years in God's eyes, then my life, my little life has already reached 41 million years. I did the math on that. The point of all of it is, as human beings, we dwell in time. We are bound by time. We can't think any other way. We live our lives in minutes and days and years, but God does not. Almighty God does not. He's eternal. Secondly, God is patient. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The word patient is an interesting word in Greek. It's uh, makrothumio, which means to suffer long, sometimes translated long-suffering, like the parents of a toddler out, out, just outlasting a tantrum, long-suffering, like Cubs fans waiting 100 years, long-suffering, like the father of the prodigal son waiting for his wayward son to come home, long-suffering. So why is it taking so long? Why hasn't he come back yet? Why is God waiting? Why is he putting up with the brokenness and sin in the world that we see all around us? Peter tells us why. Because he is long-suffering. He is patient in his mercy. He wants all to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish without faith. Notice Peter says, because he is patient, not with them, with you. He says he's patient with you. Think about it this way. Where would I be? Where would you be today if God was not long-suffering with you until you came to faith? And thirdly, he says the day of the Lord will come. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid Peter's saying that the day of God's judgment is coming. It's a promise. And for those who hold fast to the gospel, for those who hold fast to faith in Christ, it's a beautiful and hope-filled promise. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's a beautiful promise. But for those who disbelieve, for the scoffers, for those who insist on being their own God, for those who trust in their own truth, it's a devastating and final day of judgment. It's not good news. Many of you know um, that my mom passed away last November, but one of my great memories of my mom and dad over the last 25 years of their life together or so is that every morning uh, when they had breakfast together, my mom and dad would take their little, little small glasses of orange juice or prune juice. They actually drank prune juice. And they would say, they tapped their glasses together like a toast, and they would say, today might be the day. Today might be the day. Every day. Today might be the day. And what they meant was, today might be the day of the Lord. Today might be the day he comes like a thief. Today might be the day his promise is fulfilled. And they reminded themselves of that promise every day. And I think Peter would smile. I think he would smile. Because I think he would understand. He would say, you got it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Peter's reminding us that there are those who would say our hope, our hope as followers of Jesus is in vain. That our hope is foolish. That Jesus is dead and gone like any other man is still in the grave. He's not coming back. Peter says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to the scoffers. Don't listen to anyone who tries to rob you of that hope. He reminds us that the prophets pointed to the day of the Lord. He reminds us that Jesus himself promised to return on that day. And Peter would say, remember, remember that today might be the day. Today might be the day. Will you bow with me as we close? Lord Jesus, how we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your great promise. 
We thank you for the great hope that we can have. So I ask you to remind us yet again that by faith we are the beloved ones, the agapetoi, loved by our Father. Remind us that our faith is affirmed by the ancient prophets. Remind us that our hope is anchored in who you are and what you did and what you promised. And now as we come to the close of the service, prepare our hearts for bread and cup for your table. Remind us that we are beloved and that because of your gift to us, today, yes, today might be the day. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.